0: We come to uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and to a great passage of scripture as we've been talking about it for quite a long time. This is our 26th sermon through this letter and uh, we've been kind of building for this moment and we can take it in a little bit bigger chunk today because we have been uh, building to this moment. We've been talking about many things along the way but in this chapter we started with the assertion that Christ is greater than Moses. Now we don't have to exposit that again but... Uh, The point is simple, isn't it? Moses was faithful. He was a faithful servant to God. He was faithful in all the house of God. But he was faithful as a leader who himself was a servant of God. And this author says, Christ was faithful also, but Christ's faithfulness was perfect. He isn't just a servant in the house of God. He is over the house of God as the heir, as the son, as God himself. And so again, Moses is great. Christ is greater. And the point that's trying to be gotten to there is just as we saw in chapter 1 that Christ is greater than the angels who were mediators of the first covenant or the the Sinai covenant along with Moses. So too now we recognize Christ is greater than the other mediator of that covenant, Moses. Now that was very important, wasn't it, in the uh, exposition of this text? Because if you come to chapter 2, there's a warning given. If the angels mediated the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant carried with it just punishments for those who violated it or neglected it, then the question is this, if Christ is greater than the angels and Christ is greater than Moses, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who neglect the covenant in God's own Son? In fact, he words it in verse 3 of chapter 2 "Is How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What hope is there for us? My friends, that is a theme that will come back powerfully today as we look at chapter 3. And so as he deals with Moses being the other mediator of the old covenant, he would draw us to think about Moses and about the experience of Moses as a leader in the household of God. Moses was indeed a leader, was a liberator, was something like an apostle, one sent on behalf of God to do the mission that God sent him on. And so what was that mission? It was to lead the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. To lead them out to the promised land. And yet that story is complicated and sad and tragic. And we're asked to remember that. And so the author comes to this moment. And I want you to think for a moment about what he just ended with. We looked at this last Sunday. This call to faithfulness. This call to faithfulness. Moses was faithful. No question. Faithful. As a human being, can be faithful, right? He had his flaws and his faults, but he was a faithful servant. Christ, as the God-man, perfectly faithful. But now there is a call in verse 6 for you to be faithful. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, Moses served in the household of God as a servant. Christ reigns over the household of God as its heir. And now he says, we are that household. The people of God are the household. But notice what it says. If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, I won't go through all that again today. That was really our point last week, wasn't it? Faithfulness is tested over time. True faith is seen out over time. Now we are justified the moment we place our faith in Christ. But not all that seem to get a good start end well. And the Bible says it's those who persevere to the end that shall be saved. In other words, the test of true faith is the end, not what seems to be the beginning. Now again, why is that important? As we get ready to go into this text, I want you to remember the point of this letter. It's written by this author to a group of Jewish Christians that are thinking about leaving the church and going back to the synagogue, walking away from Christ Jesus and saying, We'll go back to Moses. And this author has just told us in this very chapter that you cannot do that because Moses was a servant in the household, not over the household. And furthermore, what he says about Moses is, In verse 5, he was a servant for the testimony of those things which would come afterward. We said this two weeks in a row. Moses was saying, don't look to me. Look to the one who comes after me. Like unto me, unto him you shall listen, Moses said. You shall listen to him. Not ultimately to me. I point to him. Paul makes this point in Romans, doesn't he? The end of the law is Christ Jesus. The whole point of all of this is pointing to Him. And so again, we see that you cannot walk away from Christ. If you do, you walk away and show that you never had the confidence and faith in Christ to begin with. Now, we want to look at this text because it's an important text. Because where does the author go from here? Well, as I said, he goes back to the example from the life of Moses that we would think of most powerfully in the Exodus story. Verse 7 Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Now, as we think about this text, we've called this sermon an Exodus warning. You can see why we called it that. It's a a warning birthed out of the example of what happened to that generation in the Exodus. And it's a serious warning. And as we look at it, I want us to look at three points. First of all, a psalm remembered. And second of all, a history recalled. And thirdly, a, a warning sounded. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 95, because that is the psalm that we're called to remember here. Again, I would remind you that this imagery is based on the fact that Moses was faithful, Jesus more faithful. He is the one of whom our hope is found in. It's Christ and Christ alone. And if we are to be part of the household of God, that is to be people in the house of God, we must belong to Christ. And that is what ultimately he's getting at. But that's a call for us to be faithful, as we talked about. And so we come to this psalm. And I want us to think for a moment, because the author of Hebrews is calling your attention back to Psalm 95. Back to Psalm 95. And as he does so, I want to ask you to remember what we say all the time. When you are called back to a text, don't look to a single verse. Don't look to a couple of verses. Look to the extended passage. or In case of a psalm, the entirety of the psalm. What is the psalm arguing? Well, this is a psalm that is unattributed in most of our Bibles. My Bible, it just says Psalm 95. There's no notation there. It's not ascribed to any author, although the Septuagint uh, ascribes it to David. And that's important because the next chapter of Hebrews, this psalm is quoted again and ascribed to David there. And so we don't have to wonder about that because if the New Testament quotes that this is the word of David, it is the words of David. But this author also wants you to remember something important. It's also the word of the Holy Spirit who inspired David to write this. And you can see right here from the beginning, if you turn back to Hebrews, you would see that he says, as the Holy Spirit said. This is the word of God. We should never forget it. This is the word of God to His people. But this psalm is written by David. And it is written to the people of David's day. A people who had seen many great and glorious things. Had experienced many of God's blessings. Maybe you remember the story. David finally uh, takes Jerusalem and the entire nation seems to be united under his leadership. And he defeats his enemies and the land is gained. And it says they were at rest. They were at rest. They were at peace. No enemies attacking. And David looks and says, what should be done? And he says, I know, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here. Now that's its own complicated story, isn't it, of of, uh, a misstep in trying to do that. But ultimately they get the Ark there and they worship and they praise. It's a, a glorious time, a time in which God had shown His faithful and gloriously generous hand to His people. And David is calling his people to worship God to worship the God who has so richly blessed them. Look at verse 95. We want to first look at the first half of this, which is a call to the people who have seen many glorious things to give praise, honor, and glory to their king. Not David, but the king David worships. He says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture the sheep of his hand and my friends that is a stirring call to worship isn't it and you think about everything that's said there it's all about worship singing to the lord we've been doing that this morning haven't we let's sing to him let's shout joyfully to the one we call the rock of our salvation our salvation is made firm and sure in him it's not based on anything i've done my salvation is what based on what he alone could do and did do and so again, we take note of that. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Well, that is itself worship, isn't it? We recognize that to come before God in thanksgiving. You really can't have worship without thanksgiving. Right? Worship is born out of a heart full of thanksgiving for what God has done. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God. Now look at these other ways of describing God. In His hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The lowest places that you can imagine, the highest places you can imagine, so awe-inspiring that we look upon them and marvel at their what seems to be glory. And yet they're just a small little reflection of the God who created them. And it says in terms that we can kind of understand God holds all of it in His hands. To us, it's majestic and great. To Him, it's something that He just holds. He just holds. For he's so powerful and glorious. And then this call to worship. Let us worship. Let us bow down before God. Nothing says that we recognize our place before God more than that. To get down on our knees and on our face before Him to recognize how small we are before a holy and righteous God. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us, for He is our God. And listen to this. I love this text. I think the author of Hebrews was thinking very much in terms like this. For we are His, the people of of his pasture we belong to him we're his and the sheep of his hand i, I kind of like this image again like he holds us all in his hands. you know no no earthly shepherd could do that he might be able to pick up a single sheep and put him over his shoulders as they often did there's images like that in the scriptures but he holds all of us in his hands We are His sheep, the sheep of His fold. He holds us. He governs us. He is sovereign over us. He loves us. He takes care of us. It's in His providence that we find thanksgiving. So there's all of this here in this text. But there's a warning here. The author of Hebrews jumps right to the warning. But it's in the context of a call to worship. Worship all ye people. Worship our King. Worship Him. But be careful. But be careful. We are a people, David says, who've lived in a marvelous generation. We have seen God's hand move mightily in deliverance of His people. We have seen the kingdom expand. We have seen peace brought to our people. We have seen the Ark of the Covenant brought near to us. We worship our God. But beware, lest you fall into the pattern we've seen over and over and over again. For we're not the first generation to see the blessings of God. We're not the first generation to see the deliverance of God. There have been those before us who did. And what was the message to them? We'll look at the end of verse 7 moving forward. That's what we read in Hebrews just a moment ago, but we're going to read it again. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the days of trial in the wilderness where you're Fathers tested me, and they tried me. Though they saw my work for forty years, I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Now, my friends, this is an important thing to say. An important thing to think about. It's a powerful warning given to a people. And this is what the author of Hebrews is wanting the people of his day to think about. And we're going to come back to how he applies it in a moment. But think about what David says. There is a danger in the midst of the blessings of God. There's a danger in the midst of comfort. There's a danger in the midst of God moving his hand of ignoring it, not being thankful for it, not marveling at what God has done and missing all of it. David, I think in his own day, is saying, don't take for granted this kingdom that God has given us. Don't take for granted the peace that we have. Don't take for granted all these things. They are a gift from God. Thank Him for it. Remember to thank Him. Remember to give Him praise and glory, to sing worship to His name. Remember the God who has given us these things. And that brings us to the historical memory of why they need to remember it because we've seen this happen before. And so that brings us to our second point, a history recalled. There's a need to remember history. There's a saying I think we've all heard, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, right? And we see that over and over again in the Old Testament, don't we? Let's just be honest, we see it over and over again in my life and probably in your life. God does some amazing thing and the next little bump in the road and we're fretting again. Instead, I remember the God who holds all these things in His hand in whom, in whom we can surely trust. But again, in Israel's history, it's so easy to see. The book of Judges alone, all these cycles of a people who are, are worshiping the Lord and then fall away. They begin to worship the gods of their neighbors and invasion comes and terror strikes and then they say, oh, we need to return back to God again. Oh, the lesson will be learned, right? But it isn't. For a short time it's remembered. And then again they begin to slide away into idolatry. And again the nations invade. Again we see this throughout the history of the Old Testament. It it seems clear that the message of the Old Testament is the promise would be lost if it weren't for God. If it weren't for God actively working in His people there would be no promise that could be kept because it certainly wouldn't be kept by these people who every time turned away, every time disobeyed. And I think David says, listen, you're at a moment where it would seem impossible to turn away from the living God, impossible to forget His glory, to forget His grace, to forget His goodness, to forget all the things He's given us. And yet this is the exact moment where it tends to happen. Look at our own nation, so blessed by God, so gifted by God, we remember Him not, just turn away from Him. Forget all the blessings that we've received. We see it time and again. And David says, don't forget it. Remember what we've seen before. So where does he turn? He turns to the place that makes the most sense. Another time where people began to turn away from God, began to rebel against God, began to gripe against God. And so we see it, of course, in the story of the Exodus. And if I would... Uh, ask you for just a moment, turn back to Exodus chapter 17. So I've got it in this Bible. Exodus chapter 17. Now, it's interesting because in the, uh, in the Septuagint, the, the word here is rebellion, the word that's used, that these people are always in rebellion. Uh, in the Masoretic text, it says Meribah, which is a reference to this very passage that we're going to look at, Exodus 17. And let's just read it for a moment. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. Now I want you to remember, God has delivered them by His mighty arm, taken them out of slavery, done all these things they could never do for themselves. Here's a people surely who will remember this and be thankful unto the Lord. But there is no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended, argued against, battled against Moses, saying... Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You don't don't know if He's among you? Who who led you out of Egypt? Who parted the sea so you could go across? Who is it that's led you every step of the way? Is He with us? We can't be sure. Reminds me of throughout the entire... History of the Old Testament, we come to Malachi and the Lord says, how I've loved you. They say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Can you believe such a people with no gratitude for what God has done? And yet it's here that he names this place uh, by two names here. Masah, which means trouble or testing, the place of testing, and Meribah, right? Which means, if you will, rebellion, the place of rebellion. And so again, we see here a picture, an initial picture, very early in the Exodus. It's not like, well, yeah, but they went through uh, many bad days. Many bad days. And, and just on a, on a bad, particularly bad day, they said this. No, this is right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, they're complaining, they're arguing, they're contending against God. And that word is an important word to contend against God. Paul asked in Romans 9, who are you, O man, to contend against God? Who do they think they are to contend against God and His... His servant Moses. Now, is that a unique situation? No, it's not. Unfortunately, it's not a unique situation. We can go on and on and on. John Brown, the great Scottish theologian, spoke about an entire record of Israel being like this in the wilderness. You know, uh, when they didn't have bread, they complained. God gave them manna. When they didn't like the manna, after a while, He gave them quail. They, all these various things that He did, they complained over and over about them, over and over, never showed gratitude complained every step of the way but it leads ultimately to a a decisive moment if you will a culminating moment that this text also would have us think about and that's in numbers really 12 through 14 now the reason i say 12 through 14 as i would ask you to recall we looked at a couple of weeks ago because the author of hebrews in the text that we've been looking at if you turn back to hebrews chapter 3 or maybe you keep a Finger in one place while you flip to the other. I've got two Bibles up here, which makes it a little bit easier for me. But as you look at it, it says that Moses was faithful in all God's household. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at where that came from. And it comes from Numbers chapter 12. And you'll remember, and it's important to keep this in the context of what's happening 12 through 14. Uh, Miriam and Aaron had decided, we don't need Moses Does the Lord speak only through him? Are we not also prophets of God? Why can't the people listen to us? We don't need Moses. Now, if you remember, the Lord is not pleased by this at all. The Lord calls Moses and Aaron and Miriam to the uh, tent of meeting. And listen to what he says. And it will remind you again of this relationship that God had with Moses that is unique. Again, in the context of Aaron and Miriam saying, Why can't we be the prophets? God speaks to us also, does he not? Here's what the Lord says. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So that's what God does for prophets, visions and dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. And we talked about that two weeks ago. That is privilege, isn't it? God has given Moses a unique privilege. He doesn't just speak to him in visions and dreams, but he speaks to him face to face. Even plainly, he says, not in dark sayings, not in things you have to figure out, work out what they mean. He just tells Moses what he means. And then he says this, and he sees the form of the Lord. And here's the question to Aaron and Miriam, and I think To all the children of Israel rebelling against Moses and against God, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? If I've given Moses this position of privilege, how dare you speak against him? Who do you think you are that I've lifted Moses up and you'd speak against him like this? And so it says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. Now it's right after this. Look at the very next chapter, chapter 13. My Bible here even has a, a chapter title. The 12 spies sent to Canaan. Now this is a story we've known our entire lives, isn't it? If we've been in church. We know this from the time we are children. They come almost to the land of promise. They send out 12 spies to spy out the land. A very wise strategy. We still to this day have scouts in the military, don't we? They go out and they look and see what they're going up against. Now maybe we use drones and things like that but in this day they didn't have it so they sent out men and they would go into the land and scout out the land and these 12 spies return it's a glorious land they say a land full of milk and honey it's everything God said it is everything but there's a problem the 10 spies say there's no way we can take it no way it's great we would love to have it it's never going to happen Caleb and Joshua, two of those spies, say, what are you talking about? The Lord has promised us this land. Let's just go take it. He'll be with us. He's promised to be with us. All we have to do is go and take the land of promise. The other ten say, no way. They stir up dissension among the people, rebellion amongst the people. They say, we cannot take it. There's no way we can take it. Now, you know that. You know this story. But I want you to turn, if you will, to chapter 14. And look at what God says in verses 20 through 23. 20 through 23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Now Again, that's something we've heard from our childhood. But think about it for a moment. These that were not faithful shall not ever enter. They shall not ever enter the promise that I've made to their fathers. Now, he doesn't say none will enter. These unfaithful ones will not enter. But there will be those who will enter. Now, this is the image that David is working with. These two texts and putting together this psalm and sang to his own generation listen to the word of the lord he spoke in the days if you will of joshua and caleb and he said today heed the word of the lord trust the lord do not trust in horses and chariots do not trust in the strength of your own arms trust in god to deliver as he's promised to do trust in him David's saying, in our own day, trust in God. Don't trust in the kingdom that we are building by human might. Trust in what God is doing for us and give Him thanks for what He is doing. My friends, if you want a road map to how to live a, a life of faith in God, this is it. Trust in Him and then thank Him for what He does. Thank Him in the good times. Thank Him in the valleys. Praise Him on the mountaintops. Praise Him in those difficult times. Show him appreciation, thanksgiving, and praise. David said it. Moses said it. And now in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says it. So I want to ask you for a moment to just consider how this author is using this text. And that brings us very quickly to our third point, a warning established. If we turn back to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll see how, he, how he's applying this. It's a a warning found directly in Psalm 95, but it's rooted in the text we've been looking at in the story of the Exodus. Now, it's a warning that serves as a type of what's gone wrong throughout the history of Israel. You can almost not think of a time where there was a problem in Israel that wasn't rooted in some way in this very thing of forgetting the God who had delivered them and prospered them and done all these things for them. But the parallels to what's happening here are astounding. If you think about it for a moment. Moses is the deliverer that God has chosen. The people of Israel turned their back on him. Moses just said, I think they're going to stone me to death. I think they're going to kill me. And here's a people turning their back on the crucified Savior. These are people who say, I don't really like where God has led us. I don't feel safe here. I don't have all the things I feel that I need here but back where i came from i had everything i wanted you know for the people of the israelite age it was egypt you know hey we were in slavery but hey we had bread we had water we had places to live here we come out in the desert to die you can almost imagine these hebrew people here in hebrews saying we left the synagogue we thought jesus was the messiah but we come out here to do what to die To be persecuted and and attacked and to possibly be killed? No. Let's just go back to the synagogue. Let's go back. It's a little bit safer back there. I had what I needed, what I wanted. I don't want to come out and follow Jesus just to die out here. At the root of both problems is a lack of faith. And that is what the author of Hebrews is saying to his generation, to these Hebrew Christians, I'm going to say that loosely because we're not sure. He treats them as if they are actually Christians. You can see at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, he calls them holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So I think he feels that they are Christians, but is reminding them that if they walk away, it proves they weren't. They aren't Christians if they walk away. They were never saved. They did not... Partake of the heavenly calling. And you can see that he says this. Because he tells them, how are you of the household of God? If you hold fast to confidence and hope. If you hold fast to your faith. That's really what confidence is, isn't it? To trust in God. The Israelites showed that they had no confidence in God. Because every bump that came in the road, they said No one is there to deliver us. Is God even with us? And here we have these people who have declared that they're Christians. And yet they say, oh, there's some bumps in the road. I'm just going to leave Jesus behind and go back to Moses. And the author says, Moses told you you can't do that. Moses said, look forward to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. My friends, you can't turn back. And so we come, if you will, to the message here which is really in verse 12 and I want to close with this because I want you to look at the strong word of warning given in the application the author gives here beware I don't, I don't know how much more strongly you can put it than that beware you are in mortal danger you are in danger beware brethren Lest there be found in you an evil heart of unbelief. What was the problem that the Exodus revealed? The Exodus didn't create the problem. It revealed the problem, which was the people had no faith in God. They didn't trust Him. They had no confidence in Him. They had no hope in Him. They did not trust Him. They died in the wilderness. They never made it to the land of promise. And the author says, be careful, beware, lest the current trial you're in reveals the same thing in you. That in going back to the synagogue, you show that you had an evil heart of unbelief also. Now I want to bring your attention to one last point here because he says, in departing from the living God, and some people say, some commentators say, well, they can't be talking about Jews even though everything in this text makes it clear he's talking about Jews. Every argument he makes is from the Old Testament Scriptures. I mean, it's pretty clear he's talking to Hebrews here, right? To Jewish believers, or at least Jews who have proclaimed themselves to be believers. But they say, well, look, how can he say they're departing from the living God if they're going back to Moses? My friends, this is established very clearly in the New Testament. You can't claim to reject Jesus and love God. You can't claim to know God and not know Jesus. We had a sermon back in the Gospel of John called, uh, I think it was titled, It's Both or Neither. It's on this very point. right? You can't claim to say, I'm with God the Father, but I, I reject Jesus. It doesn't work. Jesus tells you that. Moses tells you that. All these people are testifying to the same truth. So he says, look, if you go back to the synagogue because you like the safety there, you are departing from the living God because salvation is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. The entire testimony of the Old Testament was that a Messiah was coming in whom you must trust. What did the law teach us? God is perfectly holy. We are sinners. We need some reconciliation to a holy and righteous God or we stand in His judgment. Christ came as our mediator as our sacrifice, as our high priest, all the images this letter is giving us. And outside of him, you have departed from the living God. You have departed from the living God. And that means you've departed from life itself. My friends, now this is the point that I want to bring you to. Make sure we make this clear. I believe what he's saying is, if you walk away, you give the testimony you were never with us. You were never with us. You never knew Jesus because the first bump that came in the road, you turned away. Why does he give these warnings then? Well, I go back to what I said in chapter 2. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you go to your doctor and he's telling you something you should do and you don't want to listen to him, he keeps upping the stakes of how serious what he is saying is to shake you out of your complacency and to get you to listen. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor before he became a, a pastor, and so again, He's thinking in those terms. But again, the author here is saying, wait a minute. Before you walk out that door, think about the testimony that you are giving about yourself. Because if what you're saying is, I'm not with Jesus, then my friends, you're saying you're without hope. You're without hope. Now we're going to take this a little bit further Uh, over the next couple of weeks, but I want you to think about this just for a moment because there is a danger to being near to the truth of God, being amongst the people of God, being named around the people of God or amongst the people of God and never really having trusted in Christ Jesus. There's a danger of that. It's the very thing that's being spoken of, of being amongst the people of God but not really being one of the people of God. How are the people of God accounted? The children of Abraham? Well, in a physical, genetic sense. But Paul tells us it's the people who have the faith of Abraham, right? The people have the faith of Abraham. You can be amongst the Israelites and not be a person of God, not be in the household of God. You can be in the church pew and not be in the house of God. Not be counted amongst the people of God. So this author wants you to remember, how can you be counted amongst the people of God? You place your faith in Christ. That's it. You give up any hope that you can earn your own salvation and you look to the only one who can purchase your salvation, Jesus Christ. As Paul said, I came to know nothing other than this, Christ and Him crucified. So I want to leave you with this, with this stern warning of beware. Lest in an age of privilege and God's activity and being near all the things and trappings of God, you miss what really matters. And as he says in chapter 2, you drift on by. Never having trusted in Christ. My friends, that's the question today. Do you trust in Christ? Do you recognize that he is your only hope? Do you cling to him?